It's Tuesday, February 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Held, joining me in studio today for Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzman. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. We're going to dip into the full mailbag, but we have to start with the machine that is Home Depot. Holy cow. Fourth quarter profit and revenue came in higher than expected. They raised their quarterly dividend 17%. And their same store sales numbers were. They were breathtaking for a company this big and this mature. Oh, yeah. Sales for the quarter up 9.5% to $21 billion. Just that that number alone for a quarter, that's pretty darn impressive for a retailer. Same store sales up 7.1%. That includes US and international locations. Just in the US, same store sales were up 8.9%. So those are numbers you just love to see. And that's the sort of thing that I would expect in. The quarter we are in right now, I don't expect nearly nine percent comps in the U.S. in the quarter that includes, you know, the December holidays. Yeah, I think a lot of this is reflective of of kind of the slowly but surely recovering housing market in the U.S. So, just to give a little perspective, in December that was the ninth straight month that housing starts were above one million units, and that's the longest run that you've. Uh, had uh, with that metric since 2007, so that that, that gives you an, an indication that housing is improving. Um, housing starts averaged uh, 1.11 million units in 2015. Again, that's the highest number since 2007. So we're, the the housing market is finally uh, kind of back to the pre-recession levels, and that that's great for a company like uh, Home Depot. And uh, Believe it or not, though, uh, the, the housing starts number is actually still lower than what it's averaged since uh, 1959. So, the average level of housing starts since 1959 uh, is just about one and a half million units, and we're still at about 1.1 million units. So, you know, there, there, that I, I look at that number, and my takeaway from that is that there's still room for the housing market to improve, and there's still room for Home Depot to benefit from from that recovery. I don't want to geek out too much. I don't want to go too deep in the weeds on the same-store sales numbers, but I'm still pretty amazed that the expectation going into this report was they're going to be a little over 4%. That was the consensus <laughs> estimate. So, the fact that they came in a little over 7% globally, and as we talked about, just crushed it in the U.S., is is incredible. Did you get a sense of how they're doing on the e-commerce side of things? I don't think... I think they are executing better than a lot of companies in the retail space writ large. If if you're just going to include anyone who sells anything, so apparel retailers, general retailers, and certainly in this case specialty. But any sense, any color from the company on on their e-commerce? Yeah. So so Home Depot is uh, t- taking steps to innovate uh, w- with e-commerce and just its online presence and management. Kind of in the the conference call, they highlighted how there is essentially a blurring of the lines with physical retail and online retail. Like to to be a successful retailer um, today, you really need a combination of both. It doesn't mean your bricks and mortar stores are going to disappear and everything is going to be online, but you can you can mesh the two. So, um, for the year, um, their Home Depot's online business grew by about one billion dollars, or twenty five percent, to four point seven billion dollars. That's still only five point three percent or so of total sales. So it's still a fraction of total sales. But I think a good indication of how Home Depot is successfully kind of 
meshing, it's, it's online business and it's physical business, over 40% of the orders that do come in online for Home Depot are picked up in their stores. So that give, that, uh, to me, get, that, that's a, a positive uh, sign that the company is successfully integrating its physical stores and uh, using those physical, that kind of, uh, their, their physical locations. Um, at, sorry, <laughs> I'm kind of going all over the place, but they're using their physical locations to benefit their online business and vice versa. Yeah, I just had an experience last year ordering some stuff online. It was not, it wasn't the smoothest experience in the world, but I found them to be very responsive once I picked up the phone and said, I'm having a problem here. So, on the customer service side, I found them to be on the phone every bit as helpful as they are in the store. And I think that has always been an advantage Home Depot has worked hard to earn, mm-hmm. that they're helping people like me, who are only mildly handy around the house, and I almost always need some assistance when I go into a Home Depot, because I, I sort of have an idea of what I'm looking for, but not, I always need some help. And that's that's an investment they've made over the past decade that I think really helps them. No, and it really showed in the quarter transactions for tickets over nine hundred dollars. So these are the big ticket items that represents about twenty percent of their sales in the U.S. Those big ticket items again over nine hundred dollars were up eleven point nine percent in the quarter. So that's things like you know big big ticket items like appliances, roofing, special order kitchens, then their installation services, which is why I think you're alluding to. So that's stuff like roofing, sheds and countertops. So again, that's about a fifth of their US business, but nearly 12% growth in the quarter. So they're seeing a lot of growth from, you know, those pretty pricey installations and appliances. That's pretty surprising that a fifth of their business is a ticket items that high. Yeah, really remarkable. And on on the opposite side, about a fifth of their business, you know, is are, are the transactions under fifty dollars. Um, but but they're seeing the, the bulk of their growth right now is coming from the, those pricey items. And again, I think that's reflective of that that ongoing recovery that we're seeing in the housing market. Which, if housing is going to recover to kind of the, the average that we've seen over the past fifty years, we're still not uh, at that level. Which I, I think is great news for Home Depot investors. Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address from Jacob Birch in Canada. Tesla Motors hit a new 52 week low this month. Is the future of automotive manufacturing on sale and thus a good time to buy? Or is this something else? Will this new low speed the purchase of Tesla Motors by Apple or Alphabet or someone else? Elon Musk doesn't strike me as a guy who's looking to sell his business. But having said that, when you look at what has happened with that stock price and some of the other companies that he's involved in, yes, Solar City, I'm looking at you. It 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 would not shock me if he decided to sell Tesla Motors, but it would surprise me. Well, first of all, Chris, this question was actually sent in, I believe, on the day that Tesla hit its 52-week low. So next time you get a question from this listener, <laughs> let me know because that that could be a bullish indicator. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, the stock's actually it did come in a couple, about a week or so ago. Yeah, yeah, a couple weeks ago, and the stock like the stock hit a low of about 141 dollars the day this question was sent in, and today the stock is at 178. So it has recovered pretty nicely over the past couple weeks, like a lot of stocks, especially these kind of faster growth, more volatile companies that their stocks have. Covered the past couple of weeks, but yeah, Elon Musk he still owns more than twenty two percent of the company. Um, I sort of with, along with what you were saying, Chris. I just don't see 
Elon Musk wanting to sell out of Tesla right now, especially as Tesla is gearing up for this massive expansion with uh, the Model 3, kind of their mass market vehicle. Um, that's scheduled to be unveiled on March 31st, and they'll start taking pre orders um, for that vehicle next month. And that's really been the name of the game for Tesla is that you have the Roadster, you have the, the Model S, you have the Model X. All of that is generating cash to finance. The Model Three, which is essentially a mass-market electric vehicle that, you know, hopefully will be something that the world has never really seen before, and that'll really be the big-ticket item that um, propels Tesla kind of to that next phase of growth. And uh, right now, right now, management is saying that the Model Three will be ready for um, production and, and deliveries um, by the end of 2017. So. It'll be interesting to see what that vehicle looks like on the 31st. But I have a hard time seeing Elon Musk selling, wanting to sell Tesla before the Model Three, because that's really been the name of the game for the company in the past few years. It's the the big project that they've been working toward. I don't think he, he's going to want to sell that short. When they roll out their mass market vehicle, get the popcorn, because that is when. The other major automakers are really going to go after Tesla Motors in a way that they have not to this point, because Tesla Motors is a luxury vehicle maker and they are competing against the likes of BMW. Mm-hmm. But when they come out with the mass market, oh, get the popcorn because that's that's when GM and Ford and everyone else the knives are going to come out. Yeah, it'll it'll be yeah it'll be a whole new level of of competition. I think it'll be a lot of fun to watch. I'm really curious to see. What features will that Model Three vehicle have compared to the Model S? You know, to what extent will this still be a luxury brand? Like, how how many of those Tesla perks can the company realistically fit into that that Model Three? I think that'll be fascinating to watch. You know, it's um, that the price point is um, slated to be thirty five thousand dollars when you factor in rebates, incentives, things like that. It could get down to twenty five thousand. So, you know, you might be seeing a lot more Teslas on the road in the next three four years. From Steve Quinnell in Whitefish, Montana, can someone please explain what happened to Sierra Wireless? It's down 75% from where it was less than a year ago. Did I miss something where they lost some key business, or is this just a boom-and-bust tech stock? What is going on with Sierra Wireless? The company's had a rough year, and that's that's reflected in the stock. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, this is a company that's involved in you know the big buzzword, Internet of Things. So they um, they manufacture machine-to-machine communication devices. This is stuff like um, that might help a utility um, build a smart grid to monitor electricity demand. Um, products that could help um, track large, uh, you know, uh, trucking fleets or monitor heavy equipment performance to avoid safety-related accidents or other breakage like that. So, machine-to-machine communication. Zero Wireless. Uh, they're core business for a long time has been manu- you know, just manufacturing the hardware. Um, that that machine to machine communication hardware, but then they've been venturing into what they call enterprise solutions and cloud and connectivity solutions. So that's basically uh, a software platform to monitor all the data that's coming in from the, that those hardware devices. And really, the long story short, that that software side of the business, the enterprise solutions, it just hasn't really been sticking. It just hasn't been been uh, performing too well. Management continues to give. Um, different reasons for that. I, I think the the question at this point is, you know, now that the company has missed uh, their own internal guidance, uh, quarterly guidance, two quarters in a row. I don't see that as a very positive sign. You know, if, if management is missing the ball with their own estimates, 
Wall Street estimates is one thing, but management should have an understanding of, of the industry and the company. And so far, it, it looks like management has been, uh, you know, overly optimistic about what what the company is able to achieve. And they have again, they have different reasons for that. But uh, with Sear Wireless, it's really just a story of you know management giving. Uh, giving their own expectations. Wall Street has pretty high expectations, and the company continues to fail to meet those expectations. Sales growth is sluggish, and it's even it was down almost three percent the last quarter. Uh, so when you have struggling sales performance, your your new software segment is struggling to grab hold. The company made several acquisitions last year that cost over a hundred million dollars. There's just a lot of things going on at the company, but nothing is driving any measure of you know sustain what what looks to be con- consistent growth. So that, that that's a large part of why the stock is has and suffered. Have they given given any indication that they're going to back off the acquisition strategy? Because we talk all the time about acquisitions. They can lead to growth. They can also be really tough to integrate. And a company which is not that big to make those types of acquisitions at a time when they're rolling out new solutions that are not yet profitable. It sounds like they have a lot of plates spinning. Yeah. Well, those acquisitions were actually geared toward that software, you know, and cloud portion of the business. So I would hope that they back off the acquisitions, take time to integrate these businesses, because up to this point. Um, that that enterprise solution segment of the business just hasn't been um, hasn't been what what investors have have looked for. All right, before we wrap up, we were talking before we started taping about Breaking Bad and the spinoff show Better Call Saul, which uh, season two has started. I watched the second episode last night. It's such a good show. I'm loving this show so much, and I'm not a shareholder of AMC Entertainment. Which is the the company that produces Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and The Walking Dead and others? Uh, but if I were a shareholder, I would be furious in this regard because I was I, I I literally finished watching the show, clicked over to the AMC website, and thought to myself, you know what? I, I'm going to look and see what they're selling for Better Call Saul inspired stuff, whether it's apparel, mm-hmm. a coffee mug, whatever. I, I just love this show. And nothing, nothing. Not a single product. Not a single product. And I'm, they're not a Disney or a Comcast, which owns Universal. But certainly, AMC Entertainment can take a page out of that playbook and look to grow whatever money they're making on the consumer product side. Look to grow that a little more. So, I'm just saying, AMC Entertainment, get on it, people. It seems like they they must have at least like zombie gear for Walking Dead. It seems they do like. see yeah, and I've I've said before I think the Walking Dead is maybe the the biggest most culturally relevant television show that I've never watched a single minute of. <laughs> so yeah, they're they're selling Walking Dead stuff and and Breaking Bad stuff as well. But come on, we're in season two of Breaking Bad. Get with it, people. Yeah, get Better Call Saul stuff on their stat. Because I'm ready to buy, frankly. That's what it comes down to. They have one buyer. I bet there's more out there. (laughs) Oh, there are more. (laughs) Yeah. Jason Moser's another, I guarantee you. (laughs) Well, there you go. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 